my name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. If we haven't met, love to connect with you after the service. Uh, but again, th- thanks so much for, for joining us for worship today. We're wrapping up today, last message in our sermon series, Citizens of Another Kingdom. And today, as we wrap things up, I think it's probably helpful for us just to take a moment to go back to where we started. You'll remember, perhaps, if you're here near the beginning of this message series, that the way Jesus began his public ministry way back in A.D. 30 was with these words. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is now at hand. In other words, well, what he's saying is you can turn from the ways that you were living. That's what repent means. It means turn. You can turn from the ways you're living in this world. You can turn toward God. And right amongst us now, today, the kingdom of God is near. Okay, God intends that we, his people, would be like this colony of heaven on earth and that we experience more and more of living in his kingdom, which is so very different than the kingdoms of this world. As we noted early in this series, Jesus speaks on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which are synonymous terms, some 91 times in the Gospels. Far more than he teaches on things like work or relationships or money or even salvation is his teaching on the kingdom Of God. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, many times we're not really sure what he means by the kingdom of God. Is that true for anyone? Okay, no one else? Okay, man, we're done. (laughs) I'm just going to pray and say amen and we're going to (laughs) go. Okay, hopefully, we got it more now. Over this last 12 weeks, hopefully, we got it a little bit more what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. Um, But let's just remind ourselves here as we wrap up this series, and maybe we understand a little bit more now than we did a few months ago. Here's what we mean by, by the kingdom of God. Let's read this together. Would you please join me? The kingdom of God is the beautiful reign of God in the lives of men, women, and children, and in systems that conform to his will. So it's like whenever someone embraces Christ, they turn from the kingdoms of this world, and they embrace Christ as their Savior, the kingdom of God comes into them. And in addition, when a family gets reconciled, of course Jesus wants that. When a workplace moves from a domineering spirit to a loving, servant-oriented type of leadership, Jesus would want that. When systems conform to his will, like the kingdom of God is any place that you look around and you say, hmm, that just looks like Jesus. That's what Jesus would want done in this world. This seems to conform to the person of Christ as I see him in the Gospels. I love the way Clark Pinnock put it, a well-known theologian. He says it this way, citizens of the kingdom are a colony of heaven on earth. Citizens of the kingdom are bringing more of heaven down to earth living in perpetual Pentecost in the reality that the Holy Spirit is indeed in us right now, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we can do the things of God by the power of the Spirit of God, and we can be about turning what is evil into what is good. Like, God would use ordinary citizens of his kingdom like you and me to restore a little bit of the beauty of Eden 
to this sin-scarred world. We began this series and referred on a couple different times in the series to this globe that we have this vision for this world and the way it should be and we have these kingdoms of the world all around us with a vision for how life should be and Jesus kind of holds up a different vision and he invites us to look into this globe and it kind of reorients our vision, turns some things that we thought were right side up, upside down and as it turns out, as we look through this and we see some things in this world, we see some of those things in this world are actually upside down. And so he would invite us to kind of reform our vision of the way life should be, the good definition of the good life from the definitions that we get out of this world to what he presents in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 13, and in Matthew 20, which we'll get into today, and in many other passages, though, that we were not able to get into over the course of this series. Because we know that in the kingdoms of this world, the vision is basically like the good life is sexiness, or money, or worldly definitions of success, or power, status, or political might. Those are all characteristics of our worldly kingdoms around us. You know, Jesus says so frequently, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But in the kingdoms of this world, it's more like the first shall be first and the last shall be forgotten, right? I mean, that's kind of the way this world orients itself. And so we have to kind of look into the gospels on a regular basis and say, Jesus, what is it that you want as you would have us be citizens of another kingdom together, making a difference for his reign, extending his rule and reign wherever we go. And it really begins well, with that word in the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer that we've been praying over these past 75 days, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth, as it's always done in heaven. Here in my life, here in my little world, in my home, in my workplace, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here on earth as it's always done in heaven. And what that'll look like is we actually are able to love those who hate us. <laughs> Do you know that's possible? Yes. We'll actually be able to pray for those who persecute us. We'll actually be able to extend mercy to the brokenhearted and the beat up and the stuck in the mud will actually be able to care for people based on the heart as opposed to judge people on the basis of externals. We'll actually be able to be the kind of people who naturally trust God more and worry a little bit less, amen? Like we are able to be transformed into these kinds of people that are very different than the kingdoms of this world, that we are the fragrance of Christ as opposed to a conquering force or a scared fortress. We are the fragrance of Christ to a watching world that is so desperately in the need of Christ. And we're built on a solid rock that is able to stand when the harsh winds of life come in. I, I really hope that across the series you've been a bit surprised at times at the joy of Jesus in the right side up kingdom of God as compared to the lavish kingdoms of this world. I've been surprised by Jesus. I've been studying this stuff for 25 years. I've been surprised by Jesus 
and delightfully so, to see his vision of the kingdom. Now today's message as we wrap the things up is titled, The Scandalous, Unfair, Gracious, Right Side Up Kingdom of God. Okay, I packed a lot in, so buckle your seatbelts, we'll be here for a couple hours. It's the last message, I gotta get a lot in, okay? I'm gonna share one myth with you about God's kingdom, and this morning we'll share one truth about God's kingdom. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. If you open up your Bibles or your app, your church app, or your version app, however you get the scriptures is fine. But we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 20 today. And uh, I think what we're gonna find in there as we look at this one myth about God and this one truth about the kingdom of God, it starts well with this. The kingdom myth, kingdom of God myth, is God is fair. Come on, somebody. Here's the kingdom of God myth. God is fair. Friends, if you're gonna be a serious-minded follower of Christ, as opposed to a fan of Christ, and there is a big difference. If you're gonna be a serious-minded follower of Christ as opposed to merely a fan of Christ, you need to get settled once and for all. I am going to follow what God says, not what I want God to say. Like, you'll have to get settled in your mind and come back to this again and again and again. I'm going to believe what God says as opposed to what I want God to say. And the narrative that we've been told and the narrative that we oftentimes buy into, even in the church, is you got to earn everything that you get. You gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have to fix it and figure it out and be the independent Marlboro man. And we love that vision of a man in America who pulls himself up by his bootstraps and he gets it done and he doesn't need anybody's help. What I wanna tell you today is that does work well for some things. And I have that in me too. And that works really well for things like car engines and spreadsheets. But it doesn't work as well for marriages. Come on somebody. It doesn't work as well with the soul, and it certainly will not get you anything before the throne room of God. The myth is that I'm going to put out my goodness to the universe, depending on your religion of choice or your background. I'll put out my goodness to the universe, or I'll put out my goodness to God, and God or the universe or whatever you call it will bring back goodness to me. In other words, God's grace is dependent on my goodness, which basically is all about earning God's love and acceptance. So the myth goes kind of like this. I do some really good things for God. I obey him in a number of different ways, and the result is, by doing these good things, God's going to bring a lot of goodness back to me. He's going to bring his love and his acceptance to me. But if I do some bad things, and if I sin in the wrong kind of ways, then perhaps I will lose his love and his goodness and his grace. Those will be withheld from me. Again, the myth here is this idea that God operates out of what we do. You know, as the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. Except that he doesn't. 
And it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that. The myth is God is fair according to our human definitions of fairness. And as we'll see here now in Matthew chapter 20, the kingdom truth is God's grace goes way beyond fairness for all of us. Here's the kingdom truth. God's grace goes way beyond fairness for all of us. Matthew 20, starting at verse one. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them about in his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing around here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each one of them received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive much more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. What a passage. Now unemployment in Jesus' day was really high. Okay, unemployment was very high. 90% of people were poor. 10% of people were rich, and there was no middle class. And so this scene would have been repeated day after day in towns and cities all across the Roman world, where this exact thing what would happen. You have a farmer who would go into the city, and they would hire people in the hopes that there would be people there that would come well work on their land for the day. And if they needed more people, they would go back at the noontime hour and they would hire us some more. This doesn't happen that much in a city the size of Kearney, but if you go into major cities across the United States, larger cities, this continues to happen today. And particularly during periods of much higher unemployment, when the economy is much worse though than it is today, this happens all over the place. In the mid-2000s, I was part of a church that had a wonderful homeless ministry in the Denver area, and that church would welcome homeless people as we partnered with the local homeless rescue mission, and we re welcomed homeless people from the overflow who couldn't find beds at the homeless shelter, and they would sleep on our gymnasium floor. 
And they gave us cots, and we'd have 20 or 25 of them sleeping each night. And at the end of each night, we would take out our church vans, and we would take them to the local day labor site. And this exact same scene would happen every day. You'd go to the day labor site, and you'd see immigrants and homeless people and folks who are unemployed, and they're there at 7 a.m. hoping to get hired for a day. And if they're not hired, they might wait till noontime, and maybe they'll get hired for the afternoon. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. The the farmer, he hires some help at 6 a.m., and the work is larger than he thought. And so the vineyard owner goes back into the fields at 9 a.m., and then noon, and then 2 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock, and they work. And all well and good, but it means that some people have worked 12 hours and others have worked only one. Now the farmer pulls out his bag of denarius coins. And a denarius was like a standard day's wage back in that day. So as he hands each of them a denarius, perhaps you would think about a standard day's wage like today for a laborer, if he went out in the field for 10 hours, maybe he'd make $100. So the landowner says, here's your Benjamin. Here's my Monopoly Benjamin money, okay? The only kind of Benjamins I got. Here's your Benjamin. (laughs) Here's your Benjamin. And uh, those who were hired last, they look at this $100 bill and they say, what? And a smile goes across their face from ear to ear. We weren't expecting that. But as you get to the ones that were hired at 6 a.m., though, they get the same thing, $100. And they're not too happy at all. In fact, they get ticked off. And if you look carefully in your Bible, Jesus says, verse 11, they received it and they began to grumble against the landowner. Parents, could you see this? Could you see this happening around the Christmas gifts? Her gifts were more expensive than my gifts. And they begin muttering amongst themselves and perhaps complaining and perhaps comparing. And maybe someone's rolling their eyes, cussing underneath their breath. Look at verse 13 as the landowner responds. He says, he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Now, this is interesting to me. This, the landowner represents God the Father. Okay? And so God the Father looking at this one who is grumbling against him. Even there, God the Father would say, I am not being unfair to you, friend. You might grumble against me, but I'm still going to call you friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? I think in those three verses, though, that I just read, you have the nature of humanity right next to the nature of God. Like, the nature of humanity is to complain and grumble and compare, and left to ourselves, the nature of humanity is to be negative, isn't it? Like, by ourselves, without the operation of the Holy Spirit, the nature of humanity is to grumble and compare and be negative. And then you have right next to it, though, the nature of God, well, which is to be generous. And he says, quite simply, are you envious because I am so generous? 
It's like the mic drop moment by Jesus, okay? Are you envious, but because God is so generous to you? Now, why were they so upset with the landowner? They begrudge his generosity because he gave in such a way that did not seem fair to them. And frankly, my friends, it kind of seems scandalous to, to them, just like it would seem scandalous if we were in that same spot in a day labor situation today. Now, you got to notice that the day laborers who were hired at 7 a.m., they agreed to working for a denarius, and they received the wage that they agreed to. Each employee agreed to the same denarius. They're angry with the landowner, not because they didn't get something that was due to them. They're angry with the landowner because someone else did receive this something that they didn't believe that they deserved. And isn't that the way it goes for us? We compare one to another, and in the process of doing so, we lose our joy. What are they angry with? They're angry with grace. They're angry at the grace of the landowner to treat some with more generosity than they deserve. It's interesting, though, there was actually a parable that was going on at this time that was spoken by Jewish rabbis at the same time that Jesus gives his parable. And the parable, though, that was circulating amongst Jewish rabbis was almost identical to the parable Jesus states. It's quite possible that Jesus is using that parable and then changing it. Because the parable, though, that was circulated at the time has the exact same plot. You have a landowner in a vineyard, and he goes out at different times throughout the day, and each person is paid exactly the same at the end of the day. But the punchline at the end of the Jewish parable is different than the punchline of Jesus' parable. At the end of Jewish parable, the punchline is this. The folks that were hired at the end of the day got paid the same because they earned it. Because they worked harder in that one hour than the, other 12, than the others did in their 12 hours. Do you see it? It's the same exact myth that God is fair and that God's generosity is somehow dependent on our earning. But Jesus' point in this parable is the opposite of that. He's not talking about hard work here, by the way. Okay? We can settle down. <laughs> He's not talking about hard work. He wants us all to work hard, quite obviously. But that's not the point of the parable. He's not talking about fair labor laws. He's not talking about welfare or redistribution of wealth. He's not even talking about money. I pray that you have ears to hear. He's not talking about any of those things. He's talking about God's scandalous generosity to be gracious to us beyond what any of us deserve. He's gracious in a way, though, that we can never earn. He's surprisingly gracious, surprisingly generous to these workers who are hired at the end of the day, just as he is to the workers hired at the beginning of the day. I love the way author Philip Yancey puts it in his wonderful book. I have it up here, What's So Amazing About Grace. This is probably the best book on grace that I've ever read. And Yancey puts it this way. He says, grace means there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's lavish generosity. There's nothing we can do to earn God's reckless love. There's nothing we can do to earn God's scandalous grace. He is the giver, we are the receivers. We simply say thank you. 
And friends, so long as we are focused on our human notions of fairness, we will be stuck in the comparison trap where we evaluate ourselves compared to what others have or don't have. And we size others up and size ourselves up compared to them. Again, this is really hard for us to believe because we've all been kind of bred that we must earn our keep. And there's certainly a place for that. I'm not saying there's no place for that. But what the Bible would say is you cannot earn your keep before God. It begins and it ends with his grace to us. God is just, my friends, God is just, but he's not fair in the way we typically think of fairness. In the parable, the landowner represents God the Father, and the landowner is just to all those who are working in his field, but he just gives to some far more than we think he should. Now, if I were connecting the dots, well, what I would do here theologically is notice that the point is this, that God can bring someone to himself at the very end of their life, and he can be so lavishly generous and so lavishly gracious to, to that person that he would forgive that person at age 80 all the same as he forgave someone at age 10. Amen. That's the point of the passage. That God's gracious goes way, his graciousness goes way beyond any of ours would, but we should never allow ourselves to get bitter about God forgiving someone else. I know that there's people who ask this question, how could God forgive him? I've met people who are bitter over that. How could God possibly forgive her with all of the wicked things that she has done? I can't believe in a bedside conversion for him. I'm, I, I, I just wanna warn you as your pastor, that is a toxic thought. That is a thought, that is a question that will leave you bitter. A far better question is, how could God forgive me? Like I look at myself in the mirror and I know my sin before I came to Christ and I know my sin since I came to Christ and I know that I can be an angry man at times. And I know that I can be a prideful person at times. And I know I can be an impatient person at times. How is it, oh God, that you would forgive me? How could you forgive this man in the mirror? That you would welcome me into the kingdom of God now and you would secure my place in the kingdom of heaven forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. This is the question, though, that we should be asking. Friends, the, the defining feature of Christianity are these twin doctrines of grace and mercy. And grace teaches that God treats you with far more goodness than you could ever deserve. And mercy teaches that God withholds from you punishment that you do deserve. Okay, your sins deserve punishment before a righteous judge. And God is a righteous and holy judge. And he chooses to look away from your sins and place them on Jesus on the cross 
such that he would not turn away from you. In his mercy, instead, he would forgive you. Grace and mercy are so rarely found in the kingdoms of this world that it's oftentimes hard for us to get our minds around. But the simple truth is, while grace and mercy are rare in human kingdoms, they are the standard of the kingdom of God. I know that there's people who reject Christ because they say it is not fair that she who would live like hell for her life would have asked God's forgiveness and be embraced into heaven at the end of her life. But that's sad. If someone would reject Christianity but because of that, and I've known people who do reject Christianity because of these twin doctrines of grace and mercy, and I'm just telling you, that's a sad and a terrible thing to reject Christianity but because of this, because that's a failure to look into the mirror and a decision instead to spend your time looking out the window. And friends, we would be wise instead to regularly look in the mirror and just say, oh my God, you are so gracious to me that you would forgive me of all of these things though, that I have done. You've given me far more grace though, than I ever deserve. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. He's addressing a church of maybe 50 or 60 people. And as he's addressing them in this beautiful letter, he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He begins with the bad news for us, and then he's going to move toward the good news. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of sins. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but it is a long list, and it's one that many of us would find our names on. And his point in this list is there's someone in each of these categories that are in my church, Paul's saying. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, nor on and on he could go. None of those folks will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, how does that feel? That should feel pretty intense. He says, such were some of you. And if you're really willing to be honest with yourself, you're in there somewhere. I'm in there somewhere. But the next line that Paul says is this, the truth of the kingdom of God, you are washed. <laughs> you are washed. Okay, so like whichever one of those, that's you, However you would identify yourself in those sins but before, that is not how you identify yourself anymore because you've been washed by the grace of God. Okay, such were some of you, such was I, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and fought for the glory of God while we're brought into his family. God mercifully forgives anyone who will come to him as he is, including us. God graciously extends his love to anyone who will receive him, including us. You see, we operate on the human realm by the principle people must earn their keep, they only get what they deserve, but in the kingdom of God, in God's, in God's economy, we all get far more than we deserve, don't we? We all get far more goodness, though, than we deserve. Here would be a good homework assignment. Take some time this week to write down a list of everything that you have that you did not earn and you will fall to your knees in gratitude. 
You'll see some things that you did earn, but you'll see far greater things, most of which are not things at all that you did not earn. Like your life in the first place. Like the sunrise. Like the sunset. Like bald eagles and beautiful deer and pheasants and glorious creation all around us. Did we earn any of that, friends? Like adoption into God's family, like your parents, like the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us, like a heart that is beating right now, like another day. Every good and perfect gift, James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change. Friends, we would be removed from this earth in a moment if God chose to withdraw his hand from us. It's all grace. We're wise to pause and to give thanks for all he's given and not to take credit. Like I recognize that there's just such an impulse in all of us to take credit for the good things that I've done and to talk about how proud I am of my work. I feel that impulse in me. We should ditch that thinking. We should ditch that language. You know the Bible says pride is idolatry? It's the words of scripture. That pride is the pinnacle sin from which all the other sins fall down. How about instead of I'm proud of what I do, I'm proud of my great work, instead we say, I'm so grateful that God has given me the talents to do the work that I do. I'm so grateful that God has given my kids that I can rejoice in them and see their growth. Because the thing about pride is this, that like, as I take credit for the things that I do, when things are going well, it really goes to my head. And as I take credit for the things that I do, and things are not going well, it breaks my heart. Because it's all dependent on me. When in truth, The scriptures tell us that it begins and it ends with God. And we have a small part to play in the midst of it. But the more we live out of gratitude, the more we live out of God's grace, the stronger all of our efforts will be and the less we'll fall into that sin called pride. Let me wrap up our series well with this. The kingdoms of this world start with what you do. Okay, The basic philosophy of the various kingdoms of this world that we swim in every day start with what you do. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, begins with what Jesus has already done. Okay, huge difference. The kingdoms of this world start with all that we do, but the kingdom of God starts with what Jesus has already done. And I'm so grateful for that because the truth is, if I bring all of my good deeds to God, he's still, as a holy and righteous judge, he's going to judge me on the basis of the crimes that I've committed against him, as he should. And so I bring all my good stuff to him, and it's not enough to make up for the bad stuff that I do. And I try to do, 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 to climb up the ladder to God, and it won't get there. 
And so what God does, the great Christian story is this, in his grace and his mercy is he climbs down the ladder and he comes to us and he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He takes on our sin, he takes it up to the cross, he offers his righteousness in place of our sinfulness and he concludes his words from the cross with these three words, it is finished. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And in his grace, my friends, he overpaid those laborers in the vineyard. And in his grace, if you're honest, he's overpaid you. In his grace, I know he's overpaid me. As I look at the different options out there, I just gotta tell you, I'm going with the scandalous, unfair, lavish, right side up kingdom of God because it is so much better than the kingdoms of this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great kingdom, which is so far superior to any philosophy this world has seen. It is so far superior to any other world religion. Every other world religion is about what we do to earn our way to God. Christianity is about this, all that God has done to come down to us and pay the price for us. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, it's finished. Oh, Father, would you please help us even this week to operate more and more out of your grace, that we would live with it deep sense of gratitude for all that you have done for us, all that you have given for us, and that we would just have a reverent joy, a reverent fear before God, that we would stand in awe at your kindness to forgive even sinners like me. God, your kingdom begins with grace. Your kingdom begins with mercy. Would you grant us all the humility to receive it, to enter it, to begin living from it more and more, even today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, God's people say.